0: It's Thursday, September the 21st, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Coming up on the show today, the annual Parks Accessibility Conference has come to an end. How can young people... Be better educated to detect misinformation online. Don Dickinson will explore that question in her preview of McLean's magazine. And a haunting in Venice was at the top of the North American box office last weekend. Entertainment critic Michael McNeely will have a review. That and so much more coming your way over the course of the next 120 minutes on the mighty airwaves of AMI-TV. Thank you for stopping by, no matter where you are in listener land or the viewer vortex. The show begins with the top story of the day. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has addressed the United Nations General Assembly. Rob Westgate has the highlights. The PM offered up a reminder to members about the UN's creation. This body was born out of the ashes of the deadliest war humankind had ever seen. Tens of millions of people died in Europe, Africa and Asia during the Second World War. He also noted a frustrating irony facing the organization today. A permanent member of this Security Council, Russia, has launched and continues to wage an illegal war. He then called on the members to stand up to what he described as an affront to the UN. Today, the Prime Minister will focus on the crisis in Haiti. He'll sit down with Haitian officials and preside over an advisory group moderated by Canada's UN ambassador, Bob Ray. Speaking of diplomacy, tensions between Canada and India continue to rise. The Prime Minister has accused India of being involved in the killing of a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil. Canada expelled an Indian diplomat, India expelled Canadian diplomats, and now India's Visa Processing Centre in Canada has suspended services as of today. That's where I'm going to leave that story. There's a lot of speculation and allegation and noise around the story. Those are the facts. Those are the facts. Shifting to the economy, the U.S. Federal Reserve is holding interest rates steady. Michelle Franzen has more.
1: Americans won't see interest rates go up this month. The cost of borrowing, just one factor, leading the Federal Reserve to leave rates unchanged. ABC's Alexis Christophoris says a shifting economic landscape also led to the pause. We've got this ongoing UAW strike. We've got the the writer strike and the actor strike. We have the resumption of student loan payments next month. Uh, add to that, you've got a possible government shutdown and oil prices have been on the rise. So there are lots of reasons here to be very cautious. The Fed boy- leaving the door open for more rate hikes this year. Michelle Franz and ABC News.
0: And coming back to a Canadian-focused economic story, a new RBC survey shows Canadians are in a precarious financial situation. Emily Javesky has the numbers.
2: 77% of respondents say they're not able to save as much as they would like to, while roughly half say they've never been more stressed about money. Craig Bannon, director of regional finance planning support at RBC, says more than one-third of Canadians don't have an emergency fund, further weakening their financial flexibility. If inflationary pressures continue into next year, the poll finds 72% of respondents with debt are worried about taking on more debt, while 21% said they might have to come out of retirement. Emily Joveski. The Canadian Press.
0: Over to the technology world, there are some economic intersections here, though. Airbnb is attempting to crack down on fake listings. Tiffany Wong explains.
2: Airbnb says it has removed almost 60,000 fake listings and prevented another 160,000 or so from being listed this year. Starting next year, the company will ask their hosts to take live photos of their property and use AI to compare those photos with what's on the listing. Airbnb CEO Brian Chesky says fraudulent listings creates refunds and rebooking costs for them, but the biggest risk is to their reputation. I am Tiffany Wong.
0: And one more story where the economy, technology, and art intersect. Popular authors are suing the parent company of ChatGPT. Jason Nathanson has that story. John Grisham, involved in a hot legal case, seems very on brand, but it's not his latest legal thriller. It's a class
3: action lawsuit filed by Grisham, Game of Thrones creator George R.R. Martin, and others against the company OpenAI, maker of ChatGPT. The authors say their works were used to train AI without their consent, and that's a clear copyright violation. They want unspecified damages. OpenAI says in a statement that they are working with many groups on their concerns over AI, and they're
0: optimistic they'll find a solution that will benefit everyone. Jason Henderson, ABC News. That's the well, Sorry, Jason, I didn't mean to step on you. Thank you very much. That's your look at the news. Here come the daily polls at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc on Facebook. Yesterday, columnist Emily Shavers was talking about the difficult time she's having making new friends at school, so I wanted to turn to you to give Emily some advice and asked how do you make new friends? 14% of you said through hobbies, 14% of you said through work, 29% of you said through other friends, and 43% of you said through community groups. And that's a great reminder about the importance of community groups, whether those be disability-focused, equity-focused, advocacy-focused, fun-focused. Community is one of the best ways to seek out company at accessible media on twitter at accessible media inc we had a response on twitter at accessible media from mark he said mostly other friends or social activities but some social media as well today's daily poll is all about politicians and air travel prime minister justin trudeau is being criticized for taking a plane to the un general assembly in new york here's what opposition pierre Polyev had to say really
4: incredible that this high-flying, high-carbon hypocrite is jetting around the world at the expense of Canadian taxpayers at the same time as he raises fuel taxes on everyday Canadians. Say what you
0: will about Pierre Parliev, he knows how to turn a phrase. The criticism, obviously, is very tinged in politics around the carbon tax, but there's probably something to grapple with here in a really genuine way if you think about how you feel about politicians flying for short trips. A drive from Toronto, New York, Montreal, uh, Toronto, Ottawa, Montreal to New York. It's like eight hours or so. The flight's about an hour, but, you know, you still got to drive to the airport. Then you got to land in New Jersey or LaGuardia and work your way through New York traffic. It's not simply a one-hour trip. It's not simply a time efficiency. So it makes you think. Could the Prime Minister have a nice fleet of beautiful hybrid SUVs that are bulletproof and a nice convoy? He's going to need that convoy to get around New York anyway as he's going back and forth from the hotel to the UN. So there might be something to this idea of suggesting, yeah, maybe you should be taking a car to New York. I'm not saying when the Prime Minister goes to the G20 in India, he's got to get on Greta Greta Thunberg's fiberglass boat and sail across the Pacific Ocean. But for a short trip, under eight hours, 10 hours, maybe there would be some merit to the Prime Minister driving. I understand there's going to be some security concerns, but they can't be that gargantuan. It can't be that impossible to get the Prime Minister from Montreal or Ottawa down to New York City with a beautiful convoy of SUVs. I don't know. I, I I I feel like there's probably some merit to grapple with here. Why would a politician fly from Ottawa to Montreal to do business? It's pretty much as easy to drive down the four seventeen. Elizabeth Moeller, you're filling in for Alex Smite today. What do you think? How do you feel about politicians flying for short trips?
2: Yeah, I'm I'm with you on this one. I think it's it's wasteful. And I also think it doesn't speak to some of the views that he's had around our environment and carbon tax. And also like to your point, you're not really saving that much more time. In fact, you could be using more time to fly if there are delays or security issues at the airport. And not to mention, like you said, he's going to need a vehicle when he gets there. He's certainly not going to be taking the subway around New York Montreal. (laughs) I have a funny feeling that he's not hitting the tube. I I don't know why, Dave, but I have this funny feeling.
0: (laughs) Yeah, again, I I think, though, as as we grapple with this question, it has to be in a really genuine way. You you could really hear the politics tinged in Pierre Polyev's voice there. His issue wasn't that uh, planes suck up a lot of carbon. His criticism is the carbon tax. But I think this is where you can find some truth or commonality here. If you grapple with issues like climate and the environment in an honest way, then I think there are some really meaningful conversations to be had.
2: Yeah. And living your own politics as well, right? So yes. If you're talking about these concerns, then then you need to live out those politics, like you said, to the best of your ability when it makes sense to do so. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah. We're not making the prime minister paddle a boat across the Pacific Ocean. Not yet, like anyway. it's Like it's life of pie or something. Uh, Amanda, Amanda Shikarchi, what about you? How do you feel about politicians uh, using air travel?
5: yeah I totally agree with everything you guys are saying like you know if there's if there is a way you know like you know as they said you know the the carbon tax and everything to drive then you know then if you can make it happen then make it happen but I guess too though like this is a pretty short trip from Toronto to New York so maybe in this case it would make sense but I'm kind of on the fence about this one
0: yeah I mean I I would want to see something to imply like what's the security risk if you are indeed doing the driving? What what are the consequences if you're doing that? Uh, again, I don't think this should be a, a national news headline and a controversy that people scream from the rooftops, but I think if you ask the question in a very reasonable manner and look for a reasonable response, I don't know. I think, I think there'd be a, a nice conversation to be had here. I want to hear from you out there in listener land and the viewer vortex at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. How do you feel about politicians flying forward? For short trips, good, bad, or I don't care, at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc., on Facebook. You can also send emails, feedback at ami.ca, feedback at ami.ca or pick up the phone and give the show a call, 1-866-509-4545, 1-866-509-4545. Coming up after the break, how can young people be better educated to detect misinformation online? Why are we only blaming young people? I know plenty of old people who can't figure out misinformation online. I know plenty of people of my age who can't figure out misinformation online. Why do we always pick on the young people? (laughs) I'm just teasing. But Don Dickinson will explore that question in her preview of McLean's Magazine. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Fake news, conspiracy theories, misinformation. It's all over the place. Online, sometimes it can be a little bit tough to figure out what exactly is fake and what's real. AI is getting smarter every day. And some people are really good at writing stuff in disingenuous ways. So... How can misinformation be better detected, and how can you help young people and maybe folks of all generations develop a better radar when it comes to misinformation? These questions are at the crux of an article featured in this week's episode of McLean's Magazine on AMI-audio. Don Dickinson is the content curator of that show. Hey, good morning, Don.
1: Hey there, Dave. How are you?
0: Don, I am fantastic. I always like talking about misinformation because there is a whole mess of it out there. So the first article is called "Teach Kids About Misinformation" by Timothy Caulfield. <laughs> Don, why is it so common for people to share misinformed articles online?
1: Well, you know, Dave, us being journalists and whatnot, we we have this question because it's it's baffling to me, but. According to the author, people believe, share, and act on harmful misinformation for complex reasons. Maybe they're under financial stress or they're experiencing mental health problems or challenges. Um, they could be uh, having a major distrust in government and think they're being deceived. But these days, there's also the problem of volume. And this is the main thing. Humans are bombarded with, I can't un. But this is unbelievable. Seventy-four gigabytes of information every day, which is roughly equivalent to watching sixteen full-length movies. Wow! We check our yeah, I know. We check our phones more than one hundred times a day. Sometimes, plus the incentives are baked into our attend uh, our attention economy. Uh, things like likes and follows and retweets are all rigged to encourage the sharing of questionable <laughs> content.
0: Don, remember when the entire memory of a computer was like one gig forget 74 gigs of, of information in one day. There was one gig on the whole computer. So Don, I, I I quibble with the premise here a little bit that it's simply children who are vulnerable to misinformation, but I will take the author and you on your word. Why does the author argue it's been so difficult for children to discern fake facts?
1: Yeah, well uh, I, I mean I agree with you there. I think there's um I think there's a lot of misinformation going around and it's being disseminated by basically everyone of every age, you know? But including the boomers, but um, many kids and teens actually lack both the capacity and the necessary cognitive skills to wade through all of the noise. Uh, a June 2023 survey from YouGov, a British uh, marketing research firm, found that American kids are more susceptible to misinformation than older adults, partly due to the fact that they spend more time online and, as a result, are exposed to are exposed to much more mis information. So,
0: when you talk about so much more, this is where things can get a little bit nefarious. How targeted are teenagers when it comes to misinformation?
1: Yeah, well, they are very much targeted. It's very much like any uh, uh, advertising in our society. Children and teenagers are often the specific targets of misleading content. A 2021 uh, analysis by NewsGuard, an online tool that rates the credibility of news websites, found that kids as young as nine encounter misinformation within minutes of activating a TikTok account. So uh, you combine that, Dave. Wait wait, 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 wait,
0: wait! Don, hit me with that one again. I, I, that, my my brain kind of scrambled for a second. Hit me with that one oh. one more time because that seems like okay. a pretty jarring number.
1: Okay, so this was an analysis done by NewsGuard. Okay, yeah, and they found that kids as young as nine encounter misinformation within two minutes of activating a <laughs> TikTok account. Oh, but within two minutes. Yeah. So, I mean, and you got to remember a lot of these TikTok things are very personal accounts, right? They're oh, not yeah. necessarily, you know, so all of a sudden you're getting someone's opinion as opposed to facts, but they're <laughs> presenting it as facts, you know? I mean, trained journalists qualify whenever they, they 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 do something that's not absolutely 100%. They qualify, but, you know, I mean, TikTok, come on, give me a break, you know? So these kids are really being misled on a Pretty regular basis.
0: Yeah, there's there's people in our industry who are uh, lacking to some of that uh, qualification of what well, they say true. these days too. Like again, I, again, I, like Don, I, I don't mean to be dismissing what this article is arguing because I am here for more critical thinking, more media literacy across the board, whether it's children, adults, etc. But I always think I always think it's funny when some journalists will be like, look at the big bad uh, boogeyman of big tech, and not sort of like inward reflect a little bit and say like, what am I doing in this article? What am I suggesting in this? article
1: oh yeah absolutely dave i agree with you there you know but i mean let's face it there are a lot of people online that should never even be opening their mouths in society (laughs) oh oh, man (laughs) Uh, you know let's uh let's be honest you know it's not even a matter of online you know they're just uh yeah there You... you go let's let's not Get into it. <laughs> okay, well, but I, I, I do have
0: sort of a, a concluding thought here because I think what's happened here is people t- have started talking online like they used to talk at the bar or at the dinner table or the coffee shop. and there was And there was something about doing that with maybe a close group of friends and maybe grappling with an idea that was a little bit different, but it was private, it was contained, and you could kind of move on. Now when somebody makes an entire channel or an entire series of videos dedicated to something that's not true, that becomes problematic, because now that's living in the internet forever. And again, if people can't discern what they're looking at, and if they can't necessarily disprove, because sometimes the argument is made very persuasively, it can, it can really make it difficult for individuals to discern what is fake and what is real, or what's somewhere in between, where there's a grain of truth versus conclusions.
1: Yes, absolutely, Dave. I couldn't agree with you more.
0: Okay, okay. Thank you for letting me editorialize. Thank you for letting (laughs) me have my grain of truth in this conversation. Don, let's switch over to the Atlantic provinces, the Maritimes. Another article featured in this week's edition is The Battle for a Prince Edward Island Beach by Sarah Trevelyan. It's about a Toronto millionaire... Toronto millionaires who wanted who wanted to build a beachfront mega cottage on a remote what are the important details behind this story that I didn't already share
1: well (laughs) I think even the fact that you said cottage (laughs) uh this um particular uh home let's uh Let's see, I, I can't call it a cottage. I'm sorry, David. It's just not a cottage. So, this uh, millionaire, uh, Jesse Roche, um, he's a 40 something dot com millionaire and investment fund manager from Toronto. Okay, uh, sound familiar? Uh, so it's, decided... Is this my
0: autobiography? I don't, I don't know. It's not <laughs> all about
1: me. He decided that he wanted to uh, obviously go out east and build something that was really outstanding. So he is building this mega mansion, and I mean mega, on a huge uh, plot of land. Um, and uh, it's shockingly close, uh, as d- described by the author, to the beach. So encircling the site is a wall of armor stone, huge natural boulders arranged to form a breakwater, obviously because you know as we know with pei we've done stories before you know the island is in danger of erosion so he's got this uh, breakwater and this particular um breakwater extends to the to the edge of the waterline. okay okay so it basically makes the beach a completely untraversable during uh, all but the lowest tides okay hey. so that's basically the gist
0: So that's what the Toronto millionaire wants to do. What's the law in PEI when it comes to public beaches?
1: Well, this is very interesting. I had no idea this was uh, the case. Um, Though public access to beaches is enshrined in law throughout Canada, who knew, PEI is in fact a particularly unique case. Its coastline is largely made up of sandy beaches, a public commonwealth, and a source of huge pride to this little community of um, PEI. And as in many small places, the pride can sometimes tip into uh what you would call gatekeeping right so they obviously are not pleased with this the locals are completely up in arms Uh, and in 1982 the province passed the lands protection act restricting the amount of land a non-resident that's the key can own to five acres islanders get a thousand acres and 165 feet of shoreline frontage
0: Okay, so in, so in theory, you can buy shoreline frontage here if you are a resident, and you can be a little bit limited if you're a non-resident. Why were those restrictive policies put in place?
1: Okay, so this is the interesting part. The policy exists for good reason. Despite its tiny population, PEI is the most densely populated province in Canada. Who knew? Because it's also the smallest. There is little <laughs> room to stretch out. Land is scarce and precious, obviously. If an outsider wants to build big, and I mean big, uh, then the allowed maximums—they have to—they—they they have to actually go to the province to ask for approval by cabinet. Okay. Wow. So yeah, no, no, no. It's not like a very casual thing with your local de- you know, development uh, 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 um, government. Yeah, you, know, you go, city- you, go
0: down, you go down to city hall, and you slide them an envelope with some paperwork, <laughs> and bada bing, bada boom.
1: Dave, no, that I'm, never happened.
0: I'm, I'm from Quebec, Don. I I, oh. I know all about where envelopes go.
1: Oh, okay. big brown envelopes with that are padded, right? <laughs> well, you have two separate coat checks,
0: and then you you check your coat in the right one, and you have a little something in the pocket for the for the coat checker. Oh. That never ever happened in Canadian politics. It definitely didn't take down a provincial government about ten years ago.
1: Anyhow, it's back and forth and back and forth. <laughs> I'm not going to even touch that, Dave. Uh, this particular case is is is, is really being uh, discussed heavily. Uh, it's not that the man did anything wrong. He actually did go through the process as best as he saw it and as best as his legal advisors advised him to do so. So now it's basically, um, you know a really big argument by the locals saying that, you know, this is ridiculous and it's unfair and uh, the beaches belong to everybody. Okay. I
0: like that one. Hey, Don, thank you for this. Thank you for bringing these two stories to the table. Have a lovely weekend. Talk to you next week. Okay, Dave, bye bye. That's Don Dickinson, content curator with McLean's Magazine. You can find that show weekdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time on AMI Audio. Coming up next, the annual Parks Accessibility Conference has come to an end. Dr. Tilak Dutta recaps the top 10 takeaways from the event. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI TV. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The second annual Parks Accessibility Conference took place in July. The event explored how national parks can improve access to visitors. It was hosted by Accessible Parks Canada, which is overseen by the Kite Research Institute in Toronto. Dr. Tilak Duta is a scientist at Kite. Hey, Dr. Duta, thank you once again for making time to be on the show to talk about the conference. It's always such a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Dave. This was the second year of the conference. I always think there's something to the second time people get together for something like this. How did it compare to last year?
3: Yeah, well, the goal of last year was to... Figure out where the problems were. We had people from all, uh, you know, people with a whole range of disabilities, as well as people from the parks. Come, people that ran these parks, organized these parks, designed the parks. They all came and told us where they saw barriers to accessibility. And then this year, the goal was to take that information and really think about solutions. So this time, we invited people that uh, to tell us about things they were doing that were addressing those barriers. Practical and finding a list of essentially practical solutions to create kind of a roadmap for places, for parks that wanted to make their spaces more accessible.
0: I love that. There's a sense of continuity, right? You bring people together the first time around, you identify, and then you bring even more smart people in the second time and say, hey, let's start being pragmatic about this. Let's get proactive. So there were 10 big takeaways that came out of the conference. We will be here for the rest of the day if we try to go through them one by (laughs) one, but there are a few notable ones here. So let's pick out a few. The power of public input. What came out of that discussion?
3: Yeah. So this is all about. So Haley Flaro, who is the chair of the outdoor spaces. Um, there, there's the so so. There's this process going on right now in Canada where new accessibility standards are being written by technical committees, and Haley Flaro is the chair of the outdoor spaces technical committee that is in the process right now of creating a new standard that will define what places like our national parks how they should be made accessible and so she and so they had her committee um, has been working hard and put has put together a draft of one of these standards of their standard and they released it for public review and she came to our conference to talk about that what was in the standard and how important it is for the public to provide their input so before the standard goes in uh, becomes finalized they go to the public and say have a look at this what do you think what are we missing here and um, and so that is a major part of how we make our spaces more accessible making sure we give people the time to think about it and and give their
0: feedback. Friend of the program Lauren Gunther did a presentation on starting with accessibility in mind what were some of the observations from that presentation?
3: Yeah it's I think the key is that a lot unfortunately a lot of accessibility related work is done as an add-on after the fact hmm. and his point that is so obvious is that we really need to be finding a way to bring build this in at the start we need uh, people with lived experience part of the pro- to be part of the project right from the start so they can make sure that we cover all the important issues rather than try to redesign things and add on accessibility in the end. And the really interesting thing that happened is we had Ontario Parks come to the conference and they announced that they have two new parks that they're going to develop, which doesn't happen very often. Um, and, uh, And that is something they're doing. They are trying to bring the accessibility lens into the process right at the start.
0: I, you know, I, I would almost love to have a broader conversation about what goes into starting a provincial or national park. But maybe we'll put, maybe we'll put that one to the side, because that sounds like it could actually be a lot of fun. Maybe I'll put a pin in that one and come back to that one down the road. Um, sh- <laughs> shared park experiences, that was another theme that emerged. That one came up on the second day of the conference. Now, I, I'm, I, I think I can sort of decode what that means, but I'm not sure I understand it all the way. So what do you mean by a shared yeah. park experience?
3: Yeah it, it's something that's a bit subtle and it's maybe the, the detail of the of the way these standards are written is that in order to provide everyone an equal exp- or an equitable experience in these spaces, <clears throat> we want to make sure there are things you know if, if you go to a park with your family or with your friends, if you happen to have a disability, the main point here is you shouldn't you know maybe there's a a trail, at the park that is accessible for you if you happen to be a wheelchair user or you're someone with low vision and there are some special features that you need that will allow you to to better uh, experience that that activity but if that part of the park that one trail is not the trail that everyone else wants to do it's kind of pointless people go to these parks mostly to share experiences with other people mm. and so saying that well we have all of these things at the park but because you have a disability you can access this or this you know we of the 10 different things we offer these parts are for you um that's not really good enough and and the goal of of you know the this came up this theme was developed multiple times by people saying, "You know it really it, it, we have to start thinking about people going to these parks with people and they want to do things together. That's probably what most people want to want out of their experiences."
0: Dr. Dutta, so many of these priorities and takeaways are really fundamentally important, and they seem like they're right on track. But there is a piece of the puzzle that you cannot move forward with without, and that's the F word, funding. (laughs) Where where was the conversation around funding, and what does that look like moving forward?
3: Yeah, it's... I think one of the things many of the speakers at the conference highlighted is, you know, we need people to be, you know, planning ahead when you're designing a space, making sure there's funding for designing these spaces with accessibility in mind. It Sometimes it does take more space, it does take more resources, it does take more maintenance. If you have some accessible features in a park, you have to make sure they they stay working. Um, so, So all of those things... Probably require planning and some of that planning is you need money to be able to to keep those things going um the one point that i would make on that is that there is a lot of money being spent and maybe it's not always being spent the most efficiently Mm. and some of it is 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 making sure that the money that is being spent regularly that we are noticing oh you know what if we build this in right now it actually doesn't it isn't going to cost us any more right up front it the the or the incremental cost is is very small um to to take care of these things up front so there while funding is an important issue i think there are solutions uh to think you know of, of course everything's more expensive now Fund you know the government's strapped for cash every government is strapped for cash we're not going to find magical pots of money around um but that, yeah, that, that is a that is an issue that we have yeah. to grapple with, certainly.
0: I, you used the word lens earlier in the conversation, and it's a word that I oftentimes use in interviews and segments about equity lenses or disability lenses. And I think that's where the lens applies into the funding world as well. As you point out, there can be incremental gains. There can be little things you're doing in existing funding that says, how could this funding also apply to the disability or accessibility experience at a park when it's already there? Because if you think about it that way, you can sort of roll a lot of maintenance costs together rather than thinking it as a separate pot.
3: Yep. Very good point. Very good point. (laughs) The other piece of this, you know, the, the biggest challenges, if we think back to the previous year uh, that people face when they're thinking about accessibility is actually around information. Mm. So it has to do with when, when someone is thinking about going to a park, they go on the website or they call someone and the person they speak to is not that knowledgeable about what, what their facilities and, and the accessibility features that are there. Uh, similarly, the websites are kind of dis- describe things very generally without the level of detail that people need. And that is really a minimal cost to be able to update that kind of information. We're not talking about build new buildings, new new structures, you know we're talking about improving the quality of the information that's out there so people can make better decisions about where they want to visit
0: dr dutta there were so many passionate people who got together as part of this conference and with passionate people who care about this cause come a lot of personal stories how do personal stories impact the takeaways conclusions and movement from here yeah
3: i think that was the powerful the the powerful message across both years that we ran this conference was people sharing their personal experiences both what they hoped you know positive and negative let's say like things that that you know experiences they had in parks where things went really well and they and the staff understood someone's particular need and figured out how they could address a challenge either on the spot or with planning involved Um, and when people ran into challenges, uh, the the types of challenges they ran into, having people, you know, we had people from parks, Canada, Ontario parks, BC parks there. I think the people that run these parks, they can't unhear those stories. You know, once, once you realize the impact, a lack, especially a lack of accessibility, if there's places where the accessibility was poor and you hear now what that what that meant to a real person, and they share with you they're vulnerable with you and they share their story uh it's hard to not want to want to do something about it that's a message mm-hmm. that that I received from some of the the land managers the people that that design and run these parks so that that was a powerful the 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 takeaway the biggest takeaway from this conference was that people need to share their stories more because their these stories can uh, push for change.
0: Dr. Duta. you've been so generous with your time this morning. I've got one last question for you, and I'm putting you on the spot. Is there going to be year number three? Because I don't know. I see a big smile on your face. You seem to have enjoyed yourself. <laughs>
3: It was great, yeah. The, the, I mean, this, these, these two years, it has been fantastic. The grant that, you know, we get back to the F word, the funding. This is our, um, you know, we, the project that funded these, these two years, this conference. It's, it's run. It's ending in March. We are looking for the next opportunity. Um, there are organizations that have. Reached out to us. SIPSL is one of them. The it's the sorry, I'm not going to remember, but it's it's a Canadian group of uh, part uh, organizations that run these parks so you know parks Canada all the provincial park organizations are part of it they have an organization ongoing and they now see the benefit of having accessibility featured within their organization so it's possible through a group like sipsil we might be able to run it again and I really we are trying hard to make
0: it happen well dr. Duta stay in touch keep us posted we'll, we'll talk about your work nonetheless even if there's no more conference I hope there's lots of dr doctor- Tilak Dutta on the show. Thank you for all the time you spent today and thank you for your ongoing hard work. My pleasure. That's Dr. Tilak Dutta, a scientist at Kite. The top 10 takeaways from the 2023 Parks Accessibility Conference are available online. For more information, you can visit P A C. 2023.ca. PAC2023.ca. Coming up after the break, Elizabeth Moeller will have the weather story of the day. But first, here is Canadian press reporter Karen Rebo with your morning business minutes.
6: Canada's main stock index lost only a few points yesterday, while U.S. markets fell near the end of the day after the Federal Reserve chose to hold on interest rates. Toronto's TSX index slipped four points to close at 20,214. New York's Dow Jones average lost 76 points and the Nasdaq tumbled 209. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index dropped 452 points and our dollar is trading overseas this morning at 74.08 cents U.S. Asian shares are lower this morning, tracking yesterday's slump on Wall Street after the U.S. Federal Reserve said it may not cut interest rates next year by as much as it earlier thought. Alberta Premier Danielle Smith is set to release a report today that could lead to a vote on whether the province should retire the Canada Pension Plan and go it alone. The United Conservative Premier has expressed support for the potential of a go-it-alone program, given Alberta's wealth and comparatively young population. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Karen Rebo. Thank you
0: very much, Karen, from the world of money to the world of weather. Elizabeth Moeller, it's not quite sweater season yet, even though I've been wearing my hoodie to work in the mornings.
2: I agree with you, Dave, and I am a fan of the hoodie, but the first day of fall is just around the corner on Saturday, September 23rd, 2023. And while some might be ready to cozy up and switch out those summer wardrobes like Dave for a hoodie or a sweatshirt and pumpkin spice, everything nice, It certainly won't be a complete free fall into the frosty conditions this year. An extended stretch of mostly fair weather and mild temperatures will dominate across much of Ontario for the final days of September. A large ridge of high pressure will build over Ontario and Quebec by the end of the week allowing temperatures to soar far above seasonal as we approach the first day of fall on Saturday. Ridges foster sinking air, which warms up as it falls towards the ground. This air will get quite toasty for a large part of Ontario.
0: Okay, so I'm not putting my cargo shorts away don't do it. just yet, don't Elizabeth. Do it, Dave. it is pretty cold in the morning, though. I got to start wearing that hoodie. I couldn't find my favorite hoodie yesterday. I was very Dave, where dismayed. Where did it, go? It, fell where on did it the, go? it fell on the floor of my closet, so it actually wasn't that hard yeah. to find. But I'm at getting uh, worried there. At, six, worried. at 6:15 in the morning, I'm not the best searcher, but in the afternoon, uh, things came together. Elizabeth, thank you for this. I will talk to you for the roundtable in about an hour, so don't go too yeah. far. I won't. That's Elizabeth Moeller with the weather story of the day. Coming up next, an Angus Reid survey finds that more than 50% of Canadians do not have a will. Aaron Broverman considers the findings and discusses the importance of estate planning. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back, it's Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm about to criticize you, or maybe not, maybe you'll take a compliment from this. Turns out Canadians are not great with estate planning. 51% of Canadians do not have a will, according to an Angus Reid survey. Even people who have wills don't keep them up to date. Just over 12% of Canadians keep their will up to date. These numbers caught Aaron Broverman's attention. Aaron is the lead editor at Forbes Advisor Canada. Hey, good morning, Aaron.
4: Morning, Dave. How are you this morning?
0: Aaron, I'm well. I just shared a couple of the key findings from the Angus Reid survey. Wyatt, what strikes you about these numbers?
4: I mean, this doesn't surprise me, because even when I was putting together my will in, uh, I think, like 2021, Uh, leading up to it, it was sort of like, oh, right, we got to put together a will. And even when we were planning on doing it, we were putting it off a little bit. And I think that's what Canadians are doing. I also think that people's perception of what they have to do for a will is a lot more complex than it actually is. I think they have to – they think they have to – delineate every single thing that they own Mm. to like a beneficiary. And that that's just not the case. Okay. Aaron, you and I can break down this process
0: step by step in a second, but let's start a little bit broader. Why should someone make a will?
4: You should make a will so that uh, your assets go to the people you want it to, to go to, you want them to go to because If you have insurance and you name a beneficiary, your insurance will go uh, right away to the beneficiary that you name. But what about the other stuff? And when you die, there are a lot of expenses. There are funeral expenses. There are lawyer fees, all kinds of things. So it is important to at least direct the assets that you leave behind to the people you want to have them. Plus, if you don't have a will, that could mean uh, more expenses for the people left behind. And also, you're leaving it up to every province uh, to decide uh, how uh, they parse out your estate. And in every province, that procedure is different. So it's much more arbitrary unless you have an actual will. Uh, Aaron,
0: scratch a little bit deeper there. What happens if somebody doesn't have the will and the province takes over? Like, what could potentially happen?
4: If you don't have a will and the province takes over, they have their own rules as to who gets what. For example, in Manitoba, it's down to a hierarchy of beneficiaries that they have you know, previously determined. So regardless of who you want to get what, it's just gonna go by the hierarchy, usually starting with your children. In Ontario, if there are no children, your spouse gets your entire estate. And if there are children, if there's one child, it's split 50-50 between your spouse and your child. If there are more than one child, then the child gets two-thirds of your estate and the 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 spouse gets uh one-third of your estate okay so it just it just depends like there are like arbitrary rules i mean if you if you left this world not really uh you know liking your spouse or not wanting them to have half of everything that you leave behind you probably don't want to live in ontario if, you, if if you don't if you don't have children so if you have specific things you want to make sure happen you have to outline them in a will not to mention you know for a trustee to go through your entire estate and give everything up that costs uh money
0: right right or if I have my funeral instructions that I want to be set off into Lake Ontario on a funeral pyre, you know, like that's got to be there, too. And that costs money as well. Uh, Aaron, I, I, here's where I confess to you. I am one of the 51 percent of Canadians who does not have a legal will. And I'm now beginning to worry about everything that I do because I crossed on mills every day and there's a lot of buses. So walk me through this. What's the process of putting together a will?
4: Basically, you have to meet with a uh, a state uh, planning lawyer, a person who specializes in wills, but it doesn't have to be super expensive, especially if your estate or your assets aren't that complex. It can be as little as $300 in Ontario uh, to get a will done, and you don't have to Go through meticulously and say, oh, I want my mother to get my special, you know, teapot. And I want I want uh, my my father to get this particular part of money. And what about this? You don't have to go through everything. You can just say, I want all my assets, uh, anything I leave behind to be split 50 50 between my children or you know, you can just give like a percentage. You could say, "Right, I, you know, I want my wife to have it all. You don't necessarily have to go through everything and you don't really have to leave any specific instructions about a particular item. So it could be a really short appointment. Like, I mean, uh, my wife and I did it over Zoom. It took about an hour. The only thing we had to do was go to the lawyer's office in Toronto to sign the documents. And after that, it was pretty much done. No hassle. Way, way less hassle than they portray in the movies, where everyone's standing around and you know they have a list of items that you know each person gets and that sort of thing. It doesn't work like that, Aaron. I'm very encouraged to
0: know that I don't need to assign which of my dirty gym shirts are going to who in my family after I get hit by that bus on Don Mills. So that's very, very rewarding for me, Aaron. I, I know you're having this very serious, honest conversation here, but I want to wrap up on this question because this is where my brain goes around wills and estate plannings and my midlife crisis how much of this is about people not wanting to think about their own mortality
4: I really think that this is about people not wanting to think about their own mortality and if you connect it to people with disabilities you know that's why I think you see uh, less consideration taken to accessibility and that sort of thing because people don't think about things unless it happens to them. Mm. Right. Mm. And I think, you know, confronting the needs of people with disabilities, confronting your will basically lets people know that they're going to get older and they're going to die. And unless you're a very confident, perhaps religious person, you don't really know where you're going. So uh, I definitely think this is about confronting your own mortality, but really you have to think about it as leaving the people you leave behind in a good place because, you know, funerals aren't really for the dead. They're for the living. And uh, if you want to make sure that your children in particular are set up, you have to uh, put together a will. Otherwise, you're just leaving them with a lot of confusion and a lot of expenses and some arbitrary process that you, if you really thought about it, probably didn't want it to go down that way with your estate. Aaron, thank you for always being
0: the adult in the room. One day I will grow up and mature like you.
4: Thank you, Dave. That's such a compliment. And uh, I think my wife and son may beg to differ on some occasions, but uh, I really appreciate it. Oh, Aaron, thanks, sir. Have a great day. That's
0: Aaron Broverman, the lead editor at Forbes Advisor Canada. You can follow Aaron on Twitter at Broverman, or as I say sometimes around the post-show meeting, the Broverman. Broverman on Twitter at Broverman. Okay. In 60 seconds, Amanda Shikarchi will have your entertainment report. But first, Amazon is showing off some new software. Mike Dabuski has more in tech trends.
3: Dan Ackerman is the editor-in-chief of Gizmodo, and he says Amazon's Alexa voice assistant has a problem. Alexa was really the first AI assistant that a lot of people dealt with, and it seemed very smart at the time, but as the years have gone by, it's become less and less impressive just because of the competition.
0: That's why the company says Alexa
3: will soon run on a new internally developed large language model, which is the same kind of technology that underpins AI chatbots like ChatGPT. That will let you have more natural conversation you don't have the wait word every two seconds. Three. You can have ongoing conversation Ackerman says the goal from Amazon's perspective. If you feel more conversation with these devices, you're going to use them more. And maybe you'll buy more of them. Or maybe you'll, you'll do more shopping for goods and services through them, which is really the end game if you're Amazon.
0: With Tech trends I'm Mike Dubuski, ABC News. Thank you very much, Mike. Although I'm a little mad at you. You broke the now with Dave Brown rule, which is don't say the Amazon machine trigger word in the middle of broadcasts but I'll send that complaint to Mike directly let's go to Amanda Shikarchi Amanda there's a film that is still slated for release in November that I'm very excited about
5: thank you Dave yes I'm really excited about this one too there's a new trailer for the Hunger Games film The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes it is based off of the prequel novel by Suzanne Collins It follows Cory Lena Snow, Tom Blythe, whose goal is to revive his family's legacy. During that time, he mentors Lucy Graybird, and he wants to keep her alive during The Hunger Games. The movie hits theaters November 17th. So, Dave, I'm really interested because... The Hunger Games takes place in a dystopian world. What would your ideal dystopian world look like?
0: So you understand that you're asking me an oxymoron, right? That a dystopia, in theory, is not an idealized place. A dystopia is a terrible place.
5: Yeah. <laughs> but if you were to come up, like, what would some of... If you were to build this type of wait, world, like, wait, what rules Ama- would Wait, be?
0: Amanda, are you letting me be a dictator? Have you opened the doors of Dave Brown Consulting to turn me into a dictator? i guess i have uh oh man uh what rules would there be uh mandatory naps in the middle of the day uh like our friends in spain do it with little siestas in the middle of the afternoon i I think i could get down with a culture that is does a lot of napping i think there would be a mandatory statutory holiday every month like every monday uh, like the first monday of every month would literally just be a day where like nothing is open and we just hang out in parks and like You know, play baseball or football or do whatever. And uh, every bar would have to be a sports bar. Every bar would have to have wall-to-wall televisions in uh, Browntopia. What about you, Amanda? What's what's part of your dystopian world?
5: I love it. Yes. Some more things to you. I definitely think that you know, in my world, there will be the four-day work week with longer weekends, and definitely the um, you know Starbucks on every corner type situation, and as you said um you know lots of naps cuz i am definitely not a morning person um Definitely those types of things.
0: (laughs) Oh, I like this game where I get to be a dictator. Uh, Amanda, I will say this with with honesty, though. I really liked the first four Hunger Games movies, Uh, for whatever reason. I'm not saying they're cinematic masterpieces, but I found them to be compelling. I thought they were artful. They were good action movies. I liked the acting. Big Jennifer Lawrence fan over here. Loved Lenny Kravitz in the movies. Like They just had a lot of personality to the movies, and they moved at a great pace. They were super entertaining. I'm really excited for this prequel but i'm curious where else in film or literature is a dystopian world that stands out to you one that you really enjoy
5: i totally agree i loved the hunger games films and you know i never realized i was into that genre until i watched the first film and i was like wait i love the action i love the storytelling and so i definitely saw all the films in theaters I also really like the Divergent series. I um, read most of the books during quarantine and, again, quite enjoyed the world building. And, you know, there's something to be said about, you know, sci-fi or dystopian world books having, you know, relevant themes because the plot and the conflicts they talk about, you know, it's easy to go beyond the world and kind of see the battles in them that they have to fight, even if it's just the internal battle of trying to decide what they do. So I particularly enjoyed reading those.
0: Yeah, I liked the first Divergent movie, like really liked the first Divergent movie. The last two were a little uh, not not so awesome. But yeah, the first one was really good. I liked that one. Of course, there's classic dystopian novels like 1984 by George Orwell. That's obviously one of the most famous ones of all time. Brave New World, another example. But if you're looking for something that's probably a little closer to apocalyptic rather than dystopian, really, really liked Cat's Cry. Cradle by Kurt Vonnegut. Uh, I read it when I was like 13 or 14 years old and I didn't get it and I read it again a couple years later and I was like, oh, I understand now. So definitely if you get the chance, uh, Cat's Cradle by Kurt Vonnegut. Really, really interesting. Again, probably not so much dystopian is apocalyptic, maybe not dissimilar to Cormac McCarthy's uh, The Road, which was also like an awesome post-apocalyptic dystopian universe that was created. But yeah, really, like the genre is a really, really good one. Amanda, thank you for this. Have a great day. Talk to you tomorrow.
5: Thank you so much.
0: That is Amanda Shikarchi with the Entertainment Report coming up after the break. I have your regional news update and Brock Richardson stops by for a sports chat. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.